I'm continuing to follow the uh, liturgy, and uh, I'll go through three readings today, beginning with uh, Acts, and this is uh, Acts chapter 10, which is Peter's explanation of the gospel message uh, to the household of Cornelius, who maybe was the first Gentile convert, but if not the first, they were the first test case that would be you know, presented to the Jerusalem Council. And so here is the gospel. And notice the focus on resurrection here in uh, Acts chapter 10. I'll read there, verse 34 and then verse 37 to 34 uh, uh, following. So Peter proceeded to speak and said, You know what has happened all over Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all those oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. This man God raised on the third day. And granted that he be visible not to all the people... But to us, the witnesses chosen by God in advance, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commissioned us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. And so the key elements of the gospel are focused on here and uh, talks about Jesus' healing ministry, uh, his death and his resurrection. But note that his resurrection is connected to forgiveness. And of course, this is the, a, a very Jewish idea that the penalty for sin is death. And so the resurrection is the indication that sin is forgiven. So the proclamation, he is risen is good news in the sense also that we have been uh, saved, uh, forgiven of sin. And the fact that he did ordinary things like eating and drinking is consistently noted that he we ate and drank with him. You know, we read the passage this morning of the two on the road to Emmaus that they recognize him at the, the meal. Um, but the gospel accounts consistently show that he possesses a body that is similar to his former state, that it's similar, uh, it needs food, that he's going to eat fish, he's going to break bread. Um, And yet it's different. Uh, Paul makes this point in Corinthians that Jesus' own appearances, he eats and is seen and touched by others. Uh, this This is the meaning of resurrection, not just that He's had some sort of spiritual, you know, resurrection, but that he's raised bodily. And so the, the model Jesus was Jesus, that our own resurrection is going to be like his. And Paul talks about, you know, that he's the firstborn from the dead. And so it's physical resurrection. It's bodily resurrection. And so the point is that the resurrection is a continuation of his humanity that his death and resurrection, his ascension is a continuation of his humanity. So uh, maybe we could describe the resurrection of Jesus. You know, this is the the commencement of 
the potential, the full potential of humanity. And so a true incarnation of God demands that he retains his human existence for all eternity. That's part of the significance of the resurrection. And the same applies to human beings, that we are embodied. And so part of what it means you know, to be resurrected, that's how we're saved, that we're saved bodily. And so to claim that when we are in the eternal state, uh, you know, we don't discard this aspect of our humanity. This is the very essence of, of who we are. Our, our flesh is not some evil substance that we're trying to get rid of, uh, which, you know, kind of the Platonic idea, but it's actually there in a lot of hum, human thought. And so Paul makes it clear that the object of the Christian's desire, he says in Romans eight twenty three, is the redemption of the body from its bondage to decay and sin through its transformation. Um, when he spoke of the spiritual body in 1 Corinthians, it's a body animated and guided by the redeemed human spirit, revitalized by the divine spirit. But it, so it was not a rejection, though, of a materialistic resurrection, but nor is it's also a spiritual resurrection. You know, we're raised by the spirit. And so that's the, I think, the significance here of the description uh, in uh, Acts chapter 10. Let me read it. This is the, the next reading. This is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek what is above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Think of what is above, not, on, not on, of what is on earth. For you have died, for your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ your life appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. And so the, those found in Christ are participants in his death, in his resurrection. The imagery, of course, is that of baptism. We've died, we've been raised, it's already past. Note that our resurrection, it's a, a past thing and it's a future thing. If then you were raised... And it's referring back to Jesus' resurrection and our own participation at baptism in his resurrection. And then it says the ascended Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, so we're not controlled by you know, the earthly, the mortal. Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God. The idea of it's protected, it's preserved. Uh, our life may be appearing to be ebbing away, headed toward the grave. Uh, but Paul says, don't think in earthly terms, think in terms that it's hidden with God. And this will be made evident when Christ appears, that our resurrected life then at that point will be made evident. So we're living this resurrected life, but it will come to its fullness at the return of Christ, and this characterizes our life now, that we live this resurrected life. And then the third reading, the final reading, is from John, uh, the appearance uh, described in John 20, 1-9. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb, 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial clothes there, but he did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial clothes there. And the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloth, but was rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he had to rise from the dead. So it's on the Sunday, the first day of the week, and John is going to you know, trace the, the daytime. He's going to be very interested in the hour of the sun. Uh, it, it's still dark out. So it's before sunrise. And, you know, when he think here in the gospel of things that happen in the dark, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Whenever they talk about Nicodemus and the rest of the gospel, they say he was the one that came to Jesus at night. Uh, Jesus' prayerful torment in the garden is at night. His arrest is at night. Um, the light and resurrection then are joined in the imagery of this new dawn breaking but when Mary first reaches the tomb it's still you know it's perhaps the darkest point of the night uh, right before the dawn and and so the imagery that John is using that I think he's purposely playing off this idea uh, think here in the you know the disciples out fishing on the lake the sea of Galilee it says they spent a fruitless night of fishing and he's manifested to them in the morning. When the, the literal phrase here, when day was now breaking. And then the final dawn, you know, this is the final dawn that Jesus acts, he cooks a breakfast for them on the, the shore of the, the Sea of Galilee with the seven uh, faithful followers. So uh, I think it's significant that People get up, they, they look at the rising sun, and that's what the first disciples see, that, well, here the, the new life of Christ is risen with the new day. Uh, the assumption of Mary is, you know, she comes and she sees the tomb, and uh, it's not, oh, he's been raised, but that the body has been stolen or moved. And then Peter and John run. John, we think, was perhaps the youngest of the disciples, Maybe he's, that's, you know, Peter may be kind of a, uh, getting, he's maybe the oldest of the disciples. So Peter, or John's going to outlive all the rest of the disciples. And he outruns Peter to the tomb, uh, but does not go in. He hesitates, you know, I think it would be instinctive that, um, and he, we know this is John. He identifies himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. And Peter, in a characteristic fashion, he doesn't hesitate. He just goes right into the tomb. And there's significance. I think the little thing we read this morning. They find some grand, great significance in the, the folding of the grave clothes. The, they've been carefully laid out. Uh, some have said he's passed through these grave clothes as he's passed through, will pass through doors. Um, 
So the whole book, you know, is about people's belief, what they do with Jesus. You know, think here, you know, Peter, it's not clear that he believes. Think of Nathaniel. Uh, he's pictured as one who is a true Israelite, who believes immediately in Jesus. Nicodemus, we're never quite sure about the state of Nicodemus. Um, it's not, and even when we talk about the levels of belief, we talk, you know, that it's not simply that they believe and get it, but the significance of the resurrection, belief in the resurrection, will dawn slowly on the disciples. And so even at the end of the gospel, they believe in the resurrection, but it, it's not yet clear that they will have to take up the cross themselves in resurrection faith. So the resurrection is the culmination, the summation of faith. And I think if we read the gospel in this way, it's the culmination of all the signs, really, that Jesus has performed. You know, think the first sign, the changing of water into wine. Many see this as an image of the wedding supper of the Lamb in which all people will be gathered. Uh, you know, the great eschatological banquet uh, that pictured the messianic era. Resurrection is the basis of this feast. It is the new wine which cannot be contained in the old age. Think of the cleansing of the temple. That Christ is the new temple, the dwelling place of God. That resurrection has now cleansed the temple of sin and death. That was the whole point, right? The temple sacrifices, it always pointed to a time when sin and death would no longer disrupt fellowship. Now we have open access to God. That's part of the significance. He is risen. The household of God, you know, the temple is pictured as Jesus says, this is my father's house. Uh, my, uh, and, and the temple is, or the household of God will be referenced throughout John. That those who abide with me, Jesus says, abide with the father. The, you know, the, the father abides with them and the Holy Spirit abides. So there's a new temple, a new abiding. Life is made available. That's the, you know, uh, the temple was for some associated with the Garden of Eden. That Just beyond its walls was the original tree of life. Well, that tree of life has been paradise, has been restored. Many think it was the place of Abraham's sacrifice. Here the resurrection faith of Abraham is now complete in Jesus. Some think that the temple was the site of you know, J Jacob's dream. There's a ladder from earth to heaven. And now heaven and earth are drawn together as the resurrected and ascended Christ provides full access to God. Uh, the temple then is the cosmic symbol, the second sign in the Gospel of John that reaches back to the first acts of creation when the Spirit hovered over the waters and Yahweh caused the waters to form the four rivers of Eden. And now life, resurrection life, you know, often pictured, uh, equated with water, is flowing through Christ. That's the imagery in Ezekiel, you know, the rivers of life flowing out of the temple. As Jesus says to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the will, that, you know, I, it within me is the living waters. Well, here is uh, the water provided, the water of life. Uh, on that day, living water, Zechariah says, shall flow out from Ju Jerusalem, half of the to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. 
That is, it's universal, that life will be given to all. He who believes in me, Jesus says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, that life, resurrection life, is made available. Uh, if we, you know, the third sign in the gospel, the third and fourth sign, the third is the healing of the royal official's son. Here is the true healing for the nations. You know, the royal official, he's a Gentile, he's a foreigner. Uh, the fourth sign is the healing at the pool. Here's the healing, uh, the final healing for all Jews. Uh, the fifth sign is the multiplication of the loaves. But here is the true bread from heaven who sustains in the midst of death. Uh, the cure of the man born blind. We have new sight. The raising of Lazarus, obviously. You know, the, res- the seventh sign connected then directly that Jesus is the source of life. So I think that uh, in the Gospel of John there is this Jewish restoration eschatology that is seen in all of the signs uh, that is fulfilled then in in, uh, Jesus' resurrection. So the apocalyptic hope was the hope that God would act within history to vindicate his, uh, his people. And the resurrection then is that vindication. He is risen, sin is forgiven, the true temple has come, the bread from heaven is here. Uh, here is the true light. Um, if we combine the resurrection, you know, think of the, they're in the I am sayings. Uh, there's uh, several of these, but um, he says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I am... You know that I am is the tetragrammaton, the ego a me, the uh, idea of here is the name of God, and Jesus is claiming to be God incarnate. That's the significance of these I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. In each case, the I am illustrates... Some function of Jesus, I think, that is fulfilled in the resurrection. To sustain in the midst of death, to, you know, uh, the bread from heaven, to illuminate a light beyond the grave, the light of the world, to admit to God's enduring presence, I am the door of the sheep, uh, to, you know, I am the resurrection. So... Even a statement like, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life. It makes sense only on the lips of one who was the agent in creation itself and now is recreating the world. That's the significance in John. In the beginning was the word. And when he says from the cross, it is finished. Here is the encapsulation of creation. And resurrection and new creation has commenced. So the resurrection is a way, a new way of construing the world. As the Colossians passage says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In time has begun in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a new creation has come to pass. So the resurrection is a transformation of human life we're now able to live a resurrection 
lifestyle. So John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. Second Timothy, Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We are no longer oriented to death, but to life in the present tense. He is risen. He is risen indeed.